Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. It is our first episode in over two months, almost three months, and we're very happy to be here. How are you this morning? I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Harper. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. It's really good to be back. It's good to be here uh, streaming on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to current affairs. Things are happening right now as we speak. They began yesterday. Uh, today, they're continuing, and uh, it's uh, everything changes. And so I'm lo- looking forward to this uh, podcast that we can talk about things that are happening right now. Uh, yes, and I will say today, um, oh, and your speakers are up. Could you turn them down a bit? Yes, thank you. Also, today is national, uh, uh, okay, I won't say that. It's That's national uh, uh, residence day or something like that. Because uh, your sister, uh, my, my daughter, uh, today is National Residence Day. They had party for her. Oh, nice. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, so, okay, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, yes. Today we're talking about a foreign affairs article that was published in late January by Alexander Vindman. You re- may remember him from uh, the Trump impeachment over Ukraine. I think that he used to be, well, we could get his exact title, but he was an army colonel or a, and... He is an expert in Ukraine policy. Mm-hmm. So we have an article by him and Dominic Cruz Bustios. Um, and this is from a month ago, but it's what should happen the day after Russia attacks. The interesting thing is that in the month that has occurred since this article was written, we've seen that uh, some of these steps have been taken. And then we see that some of the suggestions that he has still haven't been taken, even though it literally is the day after Russia attacks, right? Today is, a day, today is the day after Russia attacks. Today is what the title of that article is. Yes. So um, we don't claim to be foreign policy experts, but we enjoy talking about foreign affairs on this show. We use foreign affairs, of which we are subscribers, as a jumping off point for our contextualization and understanding of foreign affairs. And I think it's a good resource because the individuals that it gets to publish articles are experts in the field. Which is a change from what is happening today online. People will get up and talk about things they are not experts, and people will believe them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what you and I have talked about a lot on this podcast is that let's talk to the people who are experts in the field, who spent their life in the field, who who in this in this area, they know what they're talking about, and they're saying something that's very logical, very, very uh, uh, researched out. And there's, I mean, you can fact check it. And so it's going to, that's the kind of uh, information that should be, the stories that should be told or the information that should be distributed. So I'm proud of what we do. Yes, me too. And I do think um, we can editorialize a bit, but we're editorializing from the perspective of, we're taking a look, an armchair look at what the experts' analysis is, and we would also like to stress that they are the experts, not us. That's right. And that's what people should do. Yes. So I have um, a browser pulled up, a browser window, and um, in that browser window I have Google Maps, I have... um, some definitional stuff pulled up as well. So we'll get into that as we read the article because it is uh, somewhat dense, for sure. And it relies quite a bit on geography. 
because that's what's happening over there in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, from Belarus and from Russia and from Crimea, it's it's all happening over there right now. So shall we get started? Sure. Um, before we go into it totally, I will just click on this and get to the mini bio of these two guys. Okay. Um, so it's actually, oh, crap. I'll just read it because it, it pulled up a link in a separate window. Um, Alexander Vindman is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel and former director for European Affairs at the National Security Council. He's a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, Foreign Policy Institute, and the author of Here, Right Matters, An American Story. And Dominic Cruz Bustios is a research associate at the Lawfare Institute. So I will say this right now, um, Vindman as the first author and a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel uh, what we're going to get is a very military-based analysis, which is, I think, great because what we have on our hands now is a military scenario. Exactly. Not only an expert, but an expert in this area and what's happening. Mm-hmm. And he talked about he talked about what would happen. It did happen, and now he's talking about the day after. We're there, and so this is an excellent, excellent source to talk about what's happening. Yes, and if we look, it was written January 21st, so it's about a month old, and things have transpired in the last month. But we'll try to point those out as he mentions them. If we do fail, it's just because of our ignorance, not because of, um, you know, I, I, if someone's very up on this, they may say, that's already been done, and we missed it. But we're, we tried to do our best to catch everything. All the policy suggestions he made that we've already done to sort of note that we've done those. And I might add that uh, what in this article, this is similar, not exact, but similar to advice that, say, uh, the president of the United States is given or state, uh, heads of state and other people are given. This is advice that they're given that could happen, scenarios. What do you do? Yeah. What should you do? And so he did lay out some things to do. And as you're going to bring up, David, uh, some of these things have not been done. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. Okay. Uh, would you want to read first? Okay. And I'll stop you when we get to some of the geog- geographical stuff and pull up some maps. Sound Just good? Stop me. Oh, okay. absolutely. Okay. Despite a flurry of meetings in recent weeks, the United States, NATO, Ukraine, and Russia have not moved any closer to a diplomatic solution or a reduction of tensions on the U- Ukrainian-Russian border. Although Russia has not completely abandoned it, diplomatic pretenses, the chasm between Russian and Western expectations has been laid bare. Russian officials have made clear that they are not interested in proposals focused solely on strategic stability or in military exercises, or even a moratorium on NATO membership for Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin seeks nothing short of the complete dismantling of Europe's post-Cold War security architecture and roll back of fundamental international agreements governing states' rights to self-determination, an outcome the United States and its partners and allies will never accept. Meanwhile, despite assurances that Russia has no plans to invade Ukraine, the Russian military has been occupying Ukraine's territory and fighting a war on Ukrainian soil since 2014. The military buildup along the Ukrainian-Russian border has continued unabated. Most recently, military equipment from Russia's eastern military district has been moving moving westward, while attack and transport helicopters, as well as support units, have been moving into place for a full-scale offensive. 
Russia also justified a military buildup north of Ukraine by announcing it will that it will stage joint military exercises of Belarus that were run through February 20th. Russian forces are already being concentrated near the southern and southeastern borders with Ukraine. Additional steps remain before an operation will commence, but the live fire drills and exercises that are currently taking place and the arrival of logistics units are indicative of a forced preparation for action. So uh, if, we, if we could pause there, um, just okay. to give everyone the lay of the land, um, I, I'll pull up a map of the Ukraine here and we'll... Um, so here's the Ukraine, center of the map. Mm-hmm. Here's Belarus. This is the northern border uh, where Russia is amassing troops. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has close proximity to Kiev. Kiev. Um, in 2014, 2015, here's the Crimean Peninsula. There's already Russians here, and you can sort of see a little de facto border drawn in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, between, between Ukraine and Russia. And that, well, this used to be Ukraine, but Russia right. annexed right. it. Um, That's right. And then they're also along the southern and southeastern borders here near Luhansk and Donetsk, Donetsk, uh, which uh, Vinman will later refer to as the Donbass region. So I may pause you when we get to the Donbass discussion, or I may not. Um, but this is the Donbass here, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, and those two, those two, uh, I think were annexed also, or they were uh, uh, declared declared independent. Declared independent, right? And uh, later he will talk about. Um, so he declares there, there those two right there. He declares these independence, and then uh, Putin sent in troops to be peacekeepers into these two territories, which comprise the Donbas. And he talks about one of the key areas to control is Mariupol, right here. Um, center of your screen because it's a key port on the Azal Azov Sea, the Sea of Azov. Right so, there, yeah. so that's a key which, place to hold. Which is a which is a sea close to the Bering Sea, right? I mean the the uh, the Black Sea. So the, the Sea of sea Azov will feed into the Black Sea. The Black Sea right. ha- has a route to the Mediterranean. So right. you get the whole world if you control a foothold of the Black Sea. Russia had. Um, except for Rostov on Don, no real ports on the that gave them access to the uh, Mediterranean. If they can control Ukraine, they get all of this uh, Black Sea real estate, right? Including but not limited to Odessa, which is a huge right. port. So, shall we continue? Yes. Okay. And also uh, the the southern part. Also, Ukraine has enormous natural resources. Mm-hmm. So let's continue on. Are you okay? Yes. Let's see. Uh, you were at uh, earlier this week, U.S. President Joe Biden. Okay. Earlier this week, U.S. President Joe Biden predicted that Putin would ultimately decide on some form of invasion or incursion. Quote, do I think he'll test the West, test the United States and NATO as significantly as he can? Yes, I think he will. The president said at a press conference, quote, my guess is he will move in, Biden added. Okay. A military, a major military conflict in Ukraine would be a catastrophe. It is an outcome that no one should crave, but it is now a likelihood for which the United States must 
prepare. And that's the first section. Okay, and should we just continue on? Because, I mean, I think we're rolling right now. What happens now? Okay, next session says, what happens now? Presuming that dip, uh, diplomacy fails, there are three scenarios that could play out. Which one comes to pass will depend in large part on how Putin decides he can best achieve his ultimate goals. Crippling Ukrainian military capabilities, sowing turmoil in the Ukrainian government, and ultimately turning Ukraine into a failed state, an outcome that Putin seeks because it would bring an end to the threat of Ukraine as an intractable adversary and increasingly serious uh, security challenge. Putin loathes the prospect of a thriving and prosperous democratic model in the cradle of the East Slavic civilization, a development that could provide Russian citizens with an increasingly palatable and inspiring framework for a democratic transition in their own country. Faced with declining influence and control over Ukrainian domestic and foreign policy, the Kremlin can achieve its objectives only with military force. And you showed where the cradle was, right there uh, uh, on the Black Sea and right there, uh, access to the uh, Mediterranean, right? Mm -hmm. Next paragraph. The first scenario would involve a coercive uh, diplomatic resolution to the present crisis. Uh, Russia could move to formally recognize or annex the occupied Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. The Communist Party of the Russian Federation has already taken the step of introducing a bill to the Russian state Duma that would recognize the separatist statelets in the Donbass in a manner similar to the way Russia recognized how do you pronounce that, David? Um, Ab I was doing some. Let's see here. Russian recognized Abkhazia uh, and South Ossetia. You said that down there. Gotcha. Uh, you know, you know Russian. I don't. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can pronounce these things better than I can. Abzaki, Abkhazia. Is how's that? Abkhazia. And Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Is that right? Uh -huh. Two breakaway regions in Georgia. This would allow the Kremlin to avoid further military escalation, yet still come away with a win. The Russian leadership might also hope to goad Ukraine into a miscalculation similar to the one made in 2008 by Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili. I, I apologize if I mispronounce his name. Uh, who's who chose to fight Russian-backed separatists in a Abkhazia and South Ossetia, thereby providing the Kremlin with a pretext for additional military action and plausible deniability for any culpability. So Putin uses what, what's happening inside the country as as uh, as cause to come in. Yeah, it's like a bully, um, you know, getting in someone's personal space and then they someone pushes the bully and the bully beats up the person and say, he pushed me. Exactly. And it's almost exactly, exactly like that. <laughs> that's exactly it. And that's a good, a bully is, is a good term. At least we think so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, next paragraph. On their own, however, such moves would not represent gains for Russia. They would merely further calcify the status quo. And Russia would forfeit the potential to insert a pro-Kremlin fifth column into Ukrainian domestic politics. If Putin chooses this course, the United States and NATO may still respond with additional deployments along NATO's eastern flank. Mm -hmm. 
which would bring about the kind of security dilemma that the Kremlin wants to avoid. And uh, if, just before moving on, we can just take a look at a fifth column is any group of people who undermine a larger group from within, usually in favor of an enemy group or nation. So that's sort of getting Russian sympathizers within the Ukraine to sort of undermine the legitimate Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian people, that type of thing. That's sort of, uh, just in case no one's familiar with that term, figured we'd just define it here. I'm sure, Alexander, uh, they are very familiar with that. They use those terms all the time. That's their business. That's their area. Uh, you know, other people really are not used to those terms. Thank mm -hmm. you, David. Thank you. That was good. Ready? A second scenario would involve a limited Russian offensive with limited air power to seize additional territory in eastern Ukraine and in the Donbass, perhaps as an extension of recognition or full annexation. In this scenario, Russia would seize Maripol, a major Ukrainian port on the Sea of Azov, as well as Kharkiv, a major city with symbolic importance as the interwar capital of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Now, I probably mispronounced those, didn't I, David? Um, probably. But should we take another look at the map real quick? Yes, let's do that. And look at the map. It says Russia should, uh, in this scenario, Russia would seize Mariupol, a major Ukrainian port on the Sea of Azov. Where's that? Right here. How do you pronounce that? Mar Mariupol. Yeah. Mariupol. Thank you. Sea of Azov. Az Azov. A-Z-O-V. Here's the Sea of Azov. And there you uh, go. of course, there's a route here right. to the Black Sea. The Black Sea, this is where the whole game comes in, goes uh -huh. through Istanbul into the Sea of Marmara, the Aegean Sea, and of course, finally, to the Mediterranean Sea. So um, this is access to the world. Uh, yes. If you see, there this, you go. this is the importance. That's right. That's one of the importance of this, yeah. Mm -hmm. A major important, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, as the Metter city was symbolic importance as the interwar capital of the Ukrainian, uh, as an interwar capital of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Russia could also attempt a more ambitious, expanded version of this offensive by conducting a uh, pincer move from the east and south with land, air, and sea power. From the south, Russia could establish a land bridge connecting Crimea to Russia's mainland. It could also launch an amphibious operation to seize Odessa, Ukraine's most important point, uh, port, and then push toward Russian forces already stationed in uh, Transnistria, a breakaway region, and Moldova. Okay, should we go back to the map one more time? Yes, let's do that. This is finally, okay. so you can narrate um, the first from, part. From the south, Russia could establish a land bridge. There's no map. Oh, here we go. Sorry. Uh, from the south, the other, is that Crimea right there? Yeah, that's Crimea. From the south, Russia could establish a land bridge connecting Crimea to Russia's mainland. Right there where you showed that little dotted spaces in there. You know? Yeah. And they want to connect it to Russia's mainland, which is actually right here on this black border. So, you know, they could funnel troops through here and try to connect this area with Mariupol. Donetsk, Luhansk, and so the Russian mainland, which is all this area up here, connects uh -huh. down to Crimea, Crimea through the south 
and southeast of Ukraine. Yeah. Do you have a cursor that, that we can see? Uh, oh, you can't see my cursor? No. No, I don't. There, that, no, there it is. Now oh, I see okay. it. Oh, it just has to be. Okay, good. Oh, I see. Up on the mainland up there. I see. So it's okay. this, this area they want to control, and that's uh, like the entire coast of the Sea of Azov. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. And that that's, makes sense. And I think that's more doable. That's why he releases that first. But uh -huh. then, then what he says next is very interesting. It could also launch an amphibious operation to seize Odessa over there on the left. Uh-huh. And that's Ukraine. with, that's with, uh, wait, where is it? Oh, yeah. Trans, Transnistria. Yes. Uh, Odessa, Ukraine's most important point, uh, port, and then push toward Russian forces already stationed in Transnistria, a breakaway region of Moldova. And uh, its capital is Tiraspol, so it's right here. This is the capital of Transnistria. Tiraspol. And here's in Odessa. Moldova. So really, what they're looking to control, at least in this section, is use its foothold in the Crimea and in Moldova, the breakaway, to control basically the entire Black Sea coastline. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's why they would... Yep, there you go. So... Uh, he's probably, you know, Alexander Vindman, he's very familiar with this. And it's easy because it, he's probably, he's lived with this for his life. But this, to understand what he's saying, this is really helpful, David. Yeah. So Shall we go on? Sure. That's the end of that section. Okay. Ready for the next section? Sure. A major, uh, here's a title, a major military conflict in Ukraine would be a catastrophe. Okay. Such a move would deprive Ukraine of vital economic ports along its south southern coast, render Ukraine landlocked, and resolve Russia's long-standing logistical problems with providing supplies, including water, to Crimea. This would be an enormous operation requiring all the forces Russia has assembled in Crimea and along Ukraine's eastern and northern borders. This would also require seizing and holding contested terrain. Russia would be forced to engage in a costly effort to occupy major Ukrainian cities, exposing its forces to difficult urban warfare, a protracted military campaign, and a costly insurgency. Uh, moreover, seizing and holding terrain for a long-term occupation would weaken Ukraine, but would not result in a failed state. Interesting. So there he's saying, he's saying that uh, that, yeah, what you just showed would have a landlock, would totally control it, but you have to occupy it and and the state would still be viable. Um, that That's his opinion, though, right? That's his, opi that's his opinion, right. Because, that's what he's saying. I mean, I realize that Alexander Vindman knows a lot more about this than we do, yet. I'm saying, uh, let's just, you know, highlight this real quick. Um, seizing and holding terrain... Uh, for a long-term occupation would weaken Ukraine, but would not result in a failed state unless it does. That's right. Because um, right. it, it, so, it, which it's, brings up again, the, this this is the type of information that's given to a leader or to a, to a council or a war group. They go, this is a possibility. It's not a fact. Mm -hmm. 
might happen, it might not happen. That's what you're saying, right? And I'm sure that a lot of analysis goes to but would not result in a failed state. Because I'm sure that he's thinking the amount of resources that Russia would have to expend to seize and hold Ukraine, the amount of backlash from its trading partners, all of that would mean that they can't succeed unless they really want it bad enough that they're willing to weather that storm. And in a cost-benefit analysis, it probably doesn't make sense for them to indefinitely hold Ukraine until it becomes a failed state. But it could, I guess. You know, nothing's impossible in this world, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. Also, this analysis is, when you look at this, it makes, to me, it makes perfect sense, very logical in January why we should expect him to invade Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely every indication it's going to happen. We can't we can't fool ourselves because everything is pointing toward that. It's kind of coming to this point and it did happen. Mm -hmm. And so what's the aftermath? We don't know. He's hypothesizing. Yeah. Shall we go on? Sure. Therefore, the third and most likely outcome, and he claims it's most likely, is a full-scale Russian offensive employing land, air, and sea power on all axis of attack, meaning every every direction that they have capabilities. And isn't that what's happened in the last that's exactly 36 what hours? Happened. Okay. Exactly what happened. That, that's what they did. Uh, every uh, the, A full axis of uh, access availability was was uh, uh, was used to have a full-scale Russian offensive attack. So his exactly. handicap in calling it the most likely outcome, he was right a month in advance. He's absolutely right. He knew it. He saw it, and uh, and everyone knew it. So what do you do? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're, he's getting into that. Yep. So in this scenario, Russia would establish air and naval superiority as quickly as possible, and the first thing they bombed were the airports, which the, the news reports saying the first thing that they attacked were, were, were the airports. Some Russian ground forces would then advance toward uh, Kharkiv and Sumyi in the northeast and others now based in Crimea. Did I pronounce those correctly, David? I don't think so, but let's take a look at where Kharkiv and Sumyi are. Sound good? Yes, sounds really good. We're really and educating then, ourselves right now. And others now based in Crimea and the Donbass would advance from the south and east respectively. So, so the so where we already had the Donbass from the south southeast. They're coming in, but then where's the Kharkiv and Sumy? Kharkiv's right here on the Russian border. No, no map. Oh. Bring up the map. Uh, Russian border. So due south of Moscow. See, see where they? Uh, yeah, the red thing. That's good. Kharkiv right there. Yeah. And then uh, Sumy. Uh, it's up there in the northwest. I mean. North, yeah, there you go. And here's Sumi. There's Sumi. I like those little red things. Yeah, so it's both where the uh, Kharkiv and Sumi are both uh, adjacent to the Russian border. Right, and that's probably easiest to get a foothold into into Ukraine. Uh -huh. And I think there's major waterways because they're cities. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's true, yeah. Um, but yeah, so... so the, the strategy was almost textbook. Yes, I think I think that's kind of what uh, Alexander Vindman is saying. It's also, like if you're putting your troops there, it stands to reason that you'll attack there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Russian forces in Belarus. Now we go to the north. Mm -hmm. Belarus could directly threaten Kiev, or Kiev, 
thereby pinning down Ukrainian forces that might otherwise move to reinforce the east and south. These forces could advance on Kiev to hasten the Ukrainian government's capitulation. Again, classic military tactic is attack from all sides so you can't you can't collect your forces. You spread them out, you spread them out and conquer, mm-hmm. right? And we know Belarus is from the north. Yep. And Kiev is it? Okay. Right right next to the Belarusian border. You're right. A long-term occupation would be unlikely in this scenario. Storming and pacifying major cities would entail a level of urban warfare and additional casualties that the Russian military probably wishes to avoid. Russian forces would be more likely to capture and hold territory, to establish and protect supply lines, and then withdraw after obtaining a favorable diplomatic settlement for inflicting sufficient damage. Ukraine and the West would then be left to pick up the pieces. This operation would focus on punitive strikes on the Ukrainian government, the military, critical infrastructure, and places important to the Ukrainians' national identity and morale. Russia would aim its bombs, rockets, artillery, cruise missiles, and short-range ballistic missiles at targets such as the presidential palace, presidential administrative buildings, the Verkhovna Rada, Ukraine's legislator, legislature, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the Ministry of Defense, the Ukrainian Security Service Headquarters, and uh, Maiden uh, Nezaleshosti, the Central Square at Kiev, and the site of multiple pro-democracy uh, revolutions, among other notable decision-making organs and landmarks. Uh, let's stop right there. Okay. So, right there, he's basically saying he's going to cut off the supply chains, isolate them, get a diplomatic uh, settlement, and then leave because he has captured uh, the lands that he wants. Mm -hmm. So, David, let me ask you, is this saying he doesn't really care about Ukraine? He cares about the parts of Ukraine that gives him access uh, to the the uh, Mediterranean and the in the uh, sea, the Black Sea and Aegean Sea. He just wants the resources to help Russia. Is that what this is saying? I think so. Yeah, and I think that holding Ukraine would be too difficult, and the independent pro democracy spirit in Kiev and other places is stronger than in places like the Crimea, where there was a strong pro Russian sentiment, or in the Donbas, where there's a strong pro Russian sentiment. Um, but, I mean, when I say strong pro-Russian sentiment, it's, I don't think it's a majority sentiment. I think it's a minority sentiment, but there's 20 or 30 percent Russians there. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that there's this assumption that he'll be able to take this area and there won't be pushback from the 70 percent of Ukrainians that live there. You know, this will be just fine because it's 30% Russian. It's like, well, you know, it's 70% not Russian. That's, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know where his analysis is coming from, but he also wants to smash the state, it sounds like. Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Internal Affairs, uh, Security Service, the Army, right. the Navy, the Air Force, and the Central Square where people protest. So it seems to me the reason he wants to do that, because he doesn't want them to capitulate and come back in and retake what he took. Mm-hmm. They want to weaken him. So basically, he's collapsing down Ukraine, taking what he wants, 
weaken the rest of it so they can't come back after what he took. Mm -hmm. Is that is that fair? Is that reasonable? I mean, is that an armchair? Uh, uh, is that ignorant or is that fairly logical? I think that's fairly logical. And I think that what Vinman's saying, and this is just my interpretation, is they have the power to go in and make devastate Kiev, but they don't have the will to hold Kiev indefinitely. Um, and so do they, you think they do you think they learned that in uh, in uh, uh, Afghanistan? Afghanistan. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that sort of the United States issues since 2003 in Afghanistan and Iraq are a lesson that mm -hmm. um, you don't want to hold it. Well, they were Russians were in Afghanistan before we were. Yeah, um, but when they left, we went in there and we encountered the same issues they did. Um, the fascinating thing, too, is in Syria, they were able to intervene and prop up the Bashar al-Assad regime. And we had a lot of prognostications about how that wasn't going to work. But that's really given them a foothold in the Middle East and Assad is still in power. So they may be emboldened by their previous security efforts in the Middle East, you know, near the end of the Obama um, presidency. Um, and they may say, hey, this does work. This is a workable model. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a little scary because it means now there's war in, in the Ukraine. Yep. It's actually, it's a modern warfare tactic. Uh, it's not, it's the same results as we've seen in other world wars, but it's not the same tactics because mm -hmm. it's a different, it's a different world. Shall we continue? Sure. Cyber attacks would hit critical infrastructures such as Ukraine's power grid, which could further paralyze the Ukrainian state. Russia would also prioritize the destruction of Ukrainian arms manufacturers by eliminating Ukraine's capacity to develop and produce Neptune cruise missiles, Sapsin missile systems, and RIM-2 short-range ballistic missiles. Russia could remove the prospective threat of conventional deterrent from Ukraine in the immediate future. And there you go. That is kind of like uh, neutralizing their ability to, uh, to uh, react. Mm -hmm. The ground and sea offensive would be designed to encircle and obliterate Ukraine's armed forces, hold on necessary critical terrain, and use air power, air power and long-range firepower to achieve Russia's military and political aims. These strikes would inflict tens of thousands of casualties and trigger humanitarian catastrophe, inducing chaos within the civilian and military chains of command and possibly uh, decapitating the Ukrainian leadership. If all went according to Russia's plan, the attacks would cripple the Ukrainian government, military, and economic infrastructure, all important steps toward the goal of rendering Ukraine a failed state. End of that section. Fascinating. Uh, so when I said it wouldn't result in a failed state, now he's saying, but the most likely option would have the goal of resulting in rendering Ukraine. So he was saying that option two was difficult for Russia, but option three is more aligned. The, the most likely option is the one that's that will allow them to reach their goals. So he's doing an analysis of they could do this, but they probably won't because it's strategically not beneficial from their perspective. The second, the second one. Yeah, and so because so basically, what he's saying, which is 
very, you know, being a military man is saying, you have to see how do these people think, what they're after, uh, what they, what their methods are, and this is most likely. Mm-hmm. Here, here are the scenarios, but this is most likely. So you can have scenario one, scenario two, and the most likely scenario, scenario three. One and two says, yeah, they could do that, but it's not going to achieve what they want. So three is most likely, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what happened. Yep. And yeah, so his his handicapping of what would happen was pretty accurate. Very accurate. You're right. Uh, well, should Should I read now? Okay. Sure. Go ahead. Okay, we're continuing on our new segment, An Unprecedented Response. Regardless of whether Russia opts for a more limited incursion or a broader attack, the consequences it faces from the United States and its allies and partners must be unprecedented, as the Biden administration has previously warned they would be. U.S. Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey and the chair of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, has already introduced a bill, the Defending Ukraine Sovereignty Act of 2022, that resembles a wish list for advocates of Ukrainian sovereignty. It includes provisions for the use of the Department of Defense Lease Authority and the Special Defense Acquisition Fund to support Ukraine, additional loans to support Ukraine's military, enhanced Ukrainian defensive capabilities, increased support for U.S.-Ukrainian military exchange programs, additional assistance for combating disinformation in Ukraine, the public disclosure of ill-gotten assets belonging to Putin and members of his inner circle, sanctions on the Russian state officials who participate in or aid an attack on Ukraine, sanctions on Russian financial institutions, sanctions requiring the disconnection of major Russian financial institutions from financial messaging services such as SWIFT, a prohibition on the transactions involving Russia's sovereign debt, a review of sanctions on Nord Stream 2, and sanctions on the Russian energy and mining sectors. Although the bill provides potential waivers in several instances and an exception for the importation of goods, its passage would still represent a bold step toward defending Ukraine. Okay, so I think we need to take a little bit of look at what SWIFT and Nord Stream 2 are. Does that sound good? Oh, you've muted yourself. Uh, yeah, let's let's do exactly what you said. But before we get there, let me just make a comment uh-huh. that the next sentence is the Biden administration has already signaled its backing for the Menendez bill, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that from what we're doing for, for, for all this could be signaling to Putin to to speed up his invasion. Yeah. Be, before, before, if they're moving, then you move faster. So this could be an impetus for him to speed up what he did. Yes. Which is nothing wrong with that. Uh, if he's going to do it, do it sooner than later, because if you wait, they, he can be stronger. And so... Well, he did Try move. Uh, he did move forces into place for two months, you know, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it was only when he chose to attack that we sort of that Biden gave the speech yesterday. So Swift, this is one of the things that was included in the Menendez bill. One of the things that Vinman supports, and it's one of the things that we did not do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's it facilitates interbank orders, I guess, not transfers, but. It does not facilitate funds transfer. It sends payment orders. Um, so it's how countries connect to the international banking system. Well, this was one of the things left off the table in the package of sanctions that Biden announced yesterday. And when he was pressed on it by reporters, 
he said, that's not the direction that our European allies want to go in. Now, I was telling you yesterday, I don't know why, and this is just pure speculation, but I think that Europe does significantly more business with Russia than the United States, and there may be funds that they need to repatriate before they cut Russia off from SWIFT. That's my... That's very, very logical. Very Mm -hmm. logical. Um, And then he also said, revisiting the Nord Stream 2 sanctions. Well, we see Germany... Nord Stream 2, let's just see what it is. The Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline that will transport natural gas into the European Union. um, And it runs under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany. Well, Germany announced... Um, the halting of Nord Stream 2. And so that was a project that was they cut um, as a result of Russia's actions. Now, I do want to say this, and I told you this yesterday too. The SWIFT payment systems are necessary today. There's money tied up moving around today. The functioning of the economy would be affected today by cutting Russia off from SWIFT. The mm-hmm. Nord Stream 2 is a project, yes, there's jobs, yes, there's construction, but... If it is shut down or a halt a construction, it's just one project. It's not, I don't think there's broader economy-wide effects that would be realized today. Yes, they may be realized in five years' time when the pipeline gets completed, but it's okay to sort of sacrifice those um, for the sake of doing what's right. It's not okay to sacrifice the SWIFT payment system because that would cause disruptions to internal economies. So that, it's fascinating what you're willing to sacrifice. That's right. Yep. The Nord Stream 2 could be more of a signaling, but the SWIFT is a direct impact, mm-hmm. has direct impact, immediate, immediate, direct and severe impact. Yep. And, and even more than just more than just Russia. So um, shall I continue going? Sure. That's the, good, David. The Thank Biden, you for that. Yeah. The Biden administration has already signaled its backing for Menendez's bill. Biden should take one step further and shepherd it through the Senate and the House, maneuvering carefully to ensure that these critical measures do not become another casualty of partisan bickering. Biden got off to a good start with a recent meeting on Ukraine with senators from both parties. To further ease partisan divides, Democratic senators should consider adding elements to the Menendez bill from a competing bill introduced by Jim Risch, Republican of Idaho and the ranking member of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. Traditionally, there has been strong bipartisan support for Ukraine, but the Kremlin believes that a lack of U.S. internal cohesion will undermine Washington's capacity capacity for a strong response. Congress must not lend credence to that belief. The potency of Menendez's bill comes not only from its substance, but also in the signal it would send about overwhelming bipartisan support for Ukraine. The administration should also follow through on sanctions targeting exports of advanced U.S. technology, such as semiconductors and microchips, to Russia, a measure that could adversely impact the Russian aerospace and arms industries. Additionally, either Congress or the Biden administration must move beyond merely disclosing the assets held by Putin's inner circle to directly targeting those assets. Starting with sanctions on 35 individuals previously recommended by the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, putting pressure on the key oligarchs surrounding Putin will be as important as sanctioning the officials who will be directly involved in military actions, if not more so. Okay, that's a fascinating section, don't you think? Very, very, very fascinating. He was he was laying out a strategy. He was yes. laying out, and no, he was laying out tactics on how to achieve. Uh, a very effective strategy. It's kind of like saying, like, you can push against the strong man 
Or you can take away his strength. Yeah. And the fascinating thing to me is um, the swift payments and directly targeting Putin are two of the options we left off the table that were announced yesterday. Yeah, very good point. And there was an interesting uh, op-ed in the New York Times by Paul Krugman that said, you know, if you look at Russia's trade surplus in comparison to their GDP, uh, oligarchs are parking a lot of money. It should be greater than it is. Oligarchs are parking unfathomable amounts of money in foreign countries. And so they're vulnerable because of that. And yet the problem is rich and powerful people around the world all do this. So if you start to go after Russian oligarchs, um, how would you target just them and not rich and powerful people from all countries that do this? Um, And that's a a real head scratcher, you know? Yep. Um, Do you want to read the last section? Uh, are we at the last section? I think this is the last section. Oh no, we're oh. only ha- we're only halfway done, according to Caliber. No, yeah, we're, yeah, we're only halfway done. Uh, yeah, sure. The world is on the brink of the largest military offensive in Europe since World War II. Some might question the effectiveness of sanctions as tools for deterrence or behavioral change. Indeed, with six hundred thirty billion dollars in international reserves increased. Uh, indigenization of critical industries. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, indigenization. Indigenization. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Indeed, with $630 billion in international reserves, increased indigenization of critical industries, a favorable energy market, and alternatives to SWIFT in the form of domestic Russian system for transfer of financial messages, and the Chinese cross-border interbank payment system, Russia may be able to weather the storm. Such concerns, however, overlook the fact that sanctions will still impose costs and weaken the Kremlin's networks of malign influence. As it stands, the threat of sanctions has already had an adverse effect on the Russian stock market. That said, without transatlantic unity and cooperation from the EU, sanctions will be far less meaningful and effective. And Washington's European allies are wary of the potential for sanctions to harm their own economies. Based on Biden's comments during his recent press conference, it appears that Washington may be struggling to marshal a unified response to Russian aggression, particularly in the case of cyber attacks, non-military or paramilitary actions. French President Emmanuel Macron has already undermined the image of a united front by calling for the EU to conduct its own dialogue with Russia. Meanwhile, Germany has refused to export arms to Ukraine and has failed to provide definitive position on delaying or canceling approval of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would bring Russia gas to Europe. Russia may cut off its energy supplies to Europe, which would exacerbate the existing European energy crisis and threaten transatlantic unity. The energy crisis already led the United States to send additional liquefied natural gas to EU countries last December. Europe may be forced to seek out alternative energy sources on a short timetable in order to avoid domestic repercussions. To the extent possible, Washington should assist its European allies and partners in closing the energy gap with strategic reserves of oil and gas. Other countries worry that disconnecting Russian financial institutions from SWIFT 
would create blowback for the European economy. And since SWIFT is beholden to Belgian and European law, Washington must rely to some extent on European acquiescence to enforce any Russian cutoff. The United States could attempt to force European countries to play along, as it did in 2012, when it pushed to cut Iran off from SWIFT. But at the risk of fracturing transatlantic unity, Washington may be unwilling to coerce its allies. Again, very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a conundrum. It's it's difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, it pushed Iran off of SWIFT in 2012, but Iran's interconnectedness with European economies is not the same as Russia's interconnectedness. It's not as strong as Russia. Yep. Not as strong as Russia. Well, I'm sh- the, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know that. This is interesting that we're educating ourselves. And, uh-huh. uh but I'm sure the Kremlin knows all this. So they knew this. That's probably why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's fascinating. Although, uh, have you seen the protests in Russia over this? The people are protesting. No, about invading uh, Ukraine. Yeah. No, I, I heard that uh, the people in Ukraine are taking up arms and the actual, the populace are fighting the soldiers coming in. I heard that that they're they're actually fighting with uh, the people are fighting, hmm. uh, uh, protecting their homeland. Think about it. What if someone uh, was coming in with tanks and everything? Would you just let them come in, or would you actually? No, this is my home. Yeah, you got a lot to lose. Yeah, you got everything to lose. Yeah. Shall we continue? Sure. Do you want me to read? Okay. Step it up. That's the next section. On the military front, if it is not already doing so, the United States can aid the Ukrainian government's response to Russian operations by sharing strategic, operational, and even tactical intelligence in real time. The United States should also follow the United Kingdom's example and send airlifts with lethal aid in advance of a Russian offensive. Washington should provide Ukraine with small arms, ammunition, equipment, and large quantities of man-portable air defense systems, as well as more advanced systems, including Patriot anti-air missiles and harpoon anti-ship missiles. Critics of this approach may argue that the delivery of these systems would provide a pretext for the Kremlin to preemptively launch its assault. But if Russian military action is already a given, there would no longer be a reason not to act. Although these more advanced systems will not be delivered in time to ensure proper training and integration to achieve full operational capability, some of the systems can still be deployed with initial operational capability. They will not alter the balance of military power between Ukraine and Russia, but they would impose additional costs on Russian invaders and contribute to deterrence when paired with other actions. The United States should also continue to expedite the approval process for transfers of U.S.-made weaponry to Ukraine, as it recently did for Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Additionally, in the unlikely event of a prolonged occupation and insurgency, the Biden administration should support Ukrainian insurgents. Okay, um, just continue on and finish the article real quick. That sound all right? Uh, you're muted. So you, you, yeah, let's do, go ahead and finish it. You want to do it? You want me to? I'll, I'll read it. Washington should assume the worst and plan accordingly. 
Washington should also deploy additional forces and military equipment to reassure and aid its European allies. Memories of Soviet and Russian domination remain fresh in the countries on NATO's eastern flank, and they will not sit idly by. The United States must reassure them that it has their backs, as guaranteed by Article 5 of the NATO Charter. Otherwise, in response to a perceived existential threat, they might rush military and humanitarian aid to their borders over the objections of Washington and Western European governments. This would surely raise the risk of an expanded conflagration. At a minimum, countries such as Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia will likely increase their own defenses while appealing to the United States to expand its enhanced forward presence missions. The multinational, battalion-sized battle groups that NATO stations in its most vulnerable member states. To further bolster the alliance, Washington should consider raising the possibility of Finnish and Swedish membership in NATO if either country wishes to join in the aftermath of further Russian military aggression in Ukraine. The recent dialogue between Biden and the president of Finland should continue, and Biden should have similar discussion with Swedish officials. This may yet influence Russia's calculus for launching an offensive. As a final step, in conjunction with international humanitarian organizations, the United States and its European allies and partners must establish humanitarian corridors with the resources and personnel to protect refugees. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, or even millions may flee the conflict, either as internally displaced persons within Ukraine or as refugees in neighboring countries. The United States, the United Kingdom, and the EU should accommodate this influx of asylum seekers and refugees with emergency special immigrant visas of the kind made available to Afghans fleeing the Taliban takeover of their country last summer. NATO members will need to share the burden imposed by this influx. The countries of the alliance's eastern flank cannot be expected to act alone. Okay, that's a uh, do you want to discuss that at all? Uh, well, actually, I'm glad he said what he said, because you say, this is so complex and all this stuff going on, and why do we need to worry about it? Well, we, we need to worry about it because people losing their homes, people losing their lives, all of this is very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about pe people's homes and people's livelihood, people's cultures, people's history. Uh, so all this politics might seem a lot of, a lot of uh, difficult, but it's important. Mm -hmm. It's very important. So uh, one last section, then we'll finish the article. Time to section. prepare. Although the Biden administration has handled the process of faux negotiations with Russia admirably, the ultimate outcome will still be the partial result of missed opportunities. Washington has put itself in a position in which, short of threatening military escalation, deterrence will probably fail. The options for deterrence today are significantly worse than they were last year, last month, or even last week. The U.S. commitment to peace and diplomatic resolutions during this time has been commendable, but in focusing on diplomacy without a commensurate emphasis on hard power tools, the Biden administration missed an opportunity to head off a crisis on Europe's eastern flank. In hindsight, a more forceful response to the military buildup that Russia carried out on its border with Ukraine last April could have led to preemptive force posture changes and the introduction of lethal aid to Ukraine, which might have had greater impact on altering the Kremlin's calculus for a military technical solution. 
by waiting until the last moment for the kind of sweeping responses currently under consideration. Washington must now confront Russia with the limited ability to deter and coerce. The world is on the brink of the largest military offensive in Europe since World War II. Considering the existing interests of the major political stakeholders, the United States, Ukraine, and Russia are unlikely to significantly alter their current approaches to the situation. Washington has no desire to employ hard power to deter Russia, and it will not back down on principles or values that it has espoused for decades. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky's standing is already precarious given his declining approval ratings, his failure to implement a bilateral plan for de-escalation with Russia, middling faith in his ability to lead during a time of war, his focus on prosecuting former President Petro Poroshenko on suspicion of treason, a roiling dispute with the oligarch Renat Akhmetov, and his downplaying of the current Russian threat. For Zelensky, capitulation to Russia would be tantamount to political suicide. And even if Washington or Kiev did change its stance, there is still no guarantee that Moscow would be satisfied and de-escalate. The moment a war starts, the geopolitical landscape will become significantly more challenging for U.S. national security. Washington should assume the worst and plan accordingly, leveraging all elements of its power to protect U.S. interests. The Biden administration must maintain a delicate balance, avoiding a one-on-one -on -one military confrontation with Russia while punishing Russia for creating this harsh new reality. Right now, no task is more important. Well, that was very good. That was excellent. It, I hear that, and, I get, and it's really true. It's all about timing, missed opportunities. Uh, if you wait, uh, the consequences of waiting is letting your opponent or letting the forces uh, move in directions you don't want them to move in. And if you let them go too far, you can't undo them. Uh, so it's about timing. It's just it's about recognizing the opportunity. It's about an intelligence, uh, a, 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 a political, uh, military, and uh, just uh, human intelligence uh, of seeing what's going to happen, of how things are going to unfold. It's understanding people, understanding Russia, understanding Putin, understanding our allies, understanding Europe, understanding the situation. It's all this stuff working together. It's not just military. It's not just politics. Uh, you just have to, have to understand everything together. And um, and you have to act when you have an opportunity to act to to see what the consequences are. I think he, he laid it out extremely well. He did. Extremely well. And today is the day after Russia attacked. And there's some things that he suggested that are still left undone. Yes. And I don't know if you want to pull all of your levers at once or if there's, you know, a reason why certain things aren't being done. But certain things have been done and others haven't. Nord 2 has been canceled by the Germans. Um, swift payments are still online. No one's targeting Vladimir Putin's individual assets or those of the oligarchs that surround him. That may be a good idea. But there's probably some reasons why that's not happening. And I don't know what those reasons are, but I could assume it has something to do with greed. That's probably a fair guess, right? Well, I would guess it is a fair guess. Another fair guess would be the consequences, that the risk of the consequences are greater than the benefits, uh, but also the consequences that you, you're not willing to take, uh, the downside of those, of those actions, mm -hmm. unfortunately. 
Uh, and uh, and sometimes, yeah, the greed part or the self-interest part always enters in because all this stuff, you have people behind all these things and you have egos and, uh, and self-interests. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been very good, David. Uh, anything you'd like to add before we close this off? No, but I'm happy that we're back doing the podcast. This has been episode 129, I believe. Yes, and I think, and I want to emphasize again, you've said it probably better than I can say it, but I want to emphasize it again that that uh, Alexander Vindman and uh, Dominic Cruz Bastillos, uh, they, these are experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they have... This is not just some news person trying to gather interests or viewers. These are people who understand what they're talking about. And what they what they, they hypothesize happened. And they propose, as you quite uh, well uh, pointed out, what they propose should happen has not happened yet. Uh, maybe it will, but there may be a lot of reasons uh, undermining why it didn't happen. So I think the the people who don't have extensive knowledge or experience in these areas have to be very careful in believing things that are told by people who really don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that because these these people do, and I like how we do it, David. And uh, I I think that this is uh, the kind of uh, discussions that should be made. Yes, and uh, I will also say. Politics in America for the last five years has been a messy affair. Um, now there's a security concern that's perhaps the greatest one that the United States and the world has seen in a long time. And I hope, like when Vinman says, the Menendez bill should be combined with uh, the bill from the Republican from Idaho to sort of throw everyone a bone. And I hope that in a time where United States national security Um, And the future of our ability to sort of influence events in the world and form a democratic future is at stake. I hope that this is an opportunity for the individuals in Congress and the people around the country to sort of put aside partisan differences and realize that we have these organizations. Um, Congress exists to serve the American people. And perhaps a foreign policy challenge will trickle down to domestic policy challenges. And Congress will start realizing that this country can be great, but only if we all work together. Yeah. And I would say put a, put aside petty differences. Mm-hmm. Petty differences that really don't matter in the long-term things. You bring bring things up that really don't matter. You just just to anger people. That's mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't help our country. It hurts our country. Let's look at the, the critical issues. The critical issues with long term uh, uh, effects mm-hmm. that's going to make our country great and also help other people uh, uh, in this, our allies, yes. our allies. But, and also learn from history. Uh, the people that uh, remember their parents were in World War II, uh, maybe their grandparents were in World War One. learn from that, that we are on the brink, as Vinman said, uh, the world is on the brink of the largest military offensive in Europe since World War II. Well, look how World War II started, and it's not too unlike what we see now. Yeah. So let's make sure that we learn from history and don't repeat it, because World War II was horrible. 
Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, this foreign policy challenge may be an opportunity for America to heal some of the divides and work together to do what's best for the country as a whole, not for any individual in or out groups. Well said. Well said, David. Um, so I think we can end it there, right? I think we can. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado. We hope you all have enjoyed it. Is there anything you'd like to say before we leave? Uh, we always say uh, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. Catch you next time, everyone. Bye.